Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking editor Asa Christian and art director Mike Pekovich. How's it going, Ed? It's going very well. Asa is making strange hands gestures uh, a la Diane Sawyer during the election uh, night coverage the other day. Um, I wanted to, uh, you know, this is generally the point in the show where I like to remind folks to leave a nice comment and rating on our iTunes page, tell a friend, blah, blah, blah. And this week, I wanted to take a minute to just fill you guys uh, in on the fact that we are just two comments away from our 200th post on the iTunes page. Cool. So thank you so very much for being such an active audience. The, uh, the positive comments we get uh, help us understand what's working, and even the not-so-positive comments that we occasionally get help us to dial things in and make the show that much better. So thanks, everyone. Less Mike. Um, That's what they usually say. Less Pekovich. Less Mike. More uh, cowbell. More cowbell. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Um, anyhow, I wanted to hand it off to you, Asa, because you're posing an interesting philosophical question uh, in the next issue's letter from the editor, which yeah. I happen to have a copy of right here. Do you really? I do. Well, rather than have you read that whole nosebleed and save a li- and steal all my thunder from the magazine issue, um, we always start this podcast off with some little topic of discussion. I thought a good one would be uh, the one that I said in my editor's letter this time around, the, we reviewed the new Domino XL, which is the serious extreme Domino, which overcomes any possible problem that you know or obstacle I might have had to really wanting the last Domino. Total domination of the Domino market. Oh now. my God! Now, on the old one, at least I could say that that it's uh, it, the the little mortises that it makes are a little bit small for your largest pieces of furniture. So you can't really make a full-size dining table. A lot of chairs, the the tenons would be a little small and short for certain chair work. Um, So I was able to sort of say, well, I don't need this shiny new tool. But the thing was amazing. It makes mortises and it comes with matching tenons. So you make a mortise in each piece and then a tenon, a perfect domino tenon that they sell you, of course, in a kit. Um, fits right in there, and it's perfect. It 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 turns full mortise and tenons into just as easy as making biscuits. Uh, so, but I could at least not have to argue with my wife about buying it because they were a little undersized. But now there's this Domino XL, which is like the biggest tenon is five inches long. It's it's probably as at least as long as any tenon you'd ever want, and if you ganged up enough tenons, pretty much you could make any piece of furniture with this thing. Oh, yeah. Those things like half-inch thick. Oh, my God. Yeah. So really, I have no excuse now not to buy it, no excuse not to want it. But it gets me... So the real... It got me thinking about automating your... $1,200. $1,200. Yeah, there's that. (laughs) But it got me thinking about automating furniture making and how much automation... How easy should you be able to make things until you're cheating or until maybe you're buying your way into the craft or something? Um, you know, so in this has come up a lot when we talk about should we cover CNC, um, et cetera. Uh, so that was sort of the topic. And I said a lot more than that in my letter, but it's a good question to ask you guys. Like if you had a simple way to instantly manufacture mortise and tenons, which is what this is offering, um, do you think that diminishes your you earning it, you know, earning your pieces, or diminishes your pieces somehow that you automated the 
the joinery to that extent. Well, I mean, it, it points to that unending journey we're on as woodworkers where we're always looking for faster, better, more efficient, whether it's going from drilling and chopping up to routing or getting a hollow chisel mortiser or floor standing hollow chisel mortiser with a little XY table to, uh, you know, whatever, pick your your machine, anything that's making things better or faster. So this just falls in that category. But you're right. There is, you know, where do you find that balance? For me, the thing is, you know, wood is a medium that you can't work directly with your hands. There's a tool basically always between you and the piece of wood you're working on. Your teeth. You could use your teeth. You could. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying that, just strictly speaking, go ahead. So in that sense, it's sort of like, do you want to be holding a router or a big domino, or do you want to be holding a hand plane? So to your point, you know, when does a user experience trump the efficiency of actually getting things done? For me, I like to make stuff. The other the other point is, are mortises and tenons really what make your furniture handmade? You know, if you could dispense with that tedium um, and move on to the things that people actually see, unless it's a through tenon, which you wouldn't use this domino for through tenons because the tenons are kind of grooved and right. rounded and stuff and wouldn't look good. Um, unless it's a through tenon or something like that, I'm having a good time watching Mike fl- turn himself into a pretzel trying to cough <laughs> off off the microphone. Sorry. Let's all make a whole bunch of weird, like... <clears throat> old, old, man, old, old man noises. Like when you get up off the couch? <clears throat> yeah. On the family guy, they they had the dad making the old man noises, like all the noises that you make as oh, you Peter get Griffin? older. Yeah, Peter Griffin was just getting up off the couch, <laughs> and there were about 60 noises involved with him just getting up off the couch. Anyway... Um, no, I mean, does that it, is is a mortise and tenon? You know, manufacturing a mortise and tenon that no one's ever going to see. It doesn't really, as long as it's the strength is there. You're not looking for aesthetics, and aside from experience, it doesn't make your furniture handcrafted. It's the other things you do. It's it's you know the design, the the uh, a lasting, timeless kind of elegant design, and a design that you'd want to live with for generations. It's choosing wood the way we choose wood, the way a factory can't. It's the handcrafted details. It's the surface prep. It's the finish. It's those things that actually show up. Does it really matter? Let me state the obvious here. Go ahead. Yeah. Isn't, I mean, come on, guys. Just admit it. Isn't half of the fun of working in your shop, like breaking out that sexy little rabbit block plane and trimming your tenon cheeks and like, oh, and now I have another tool to do this. And if you do it all with this That's domino true. thing, it's like, oh, man, then you have no use for half of all those really cool little tools. I know. It's the experience. You lose some of the experience. But the truth is um, I do like making tenons. That's fun. But I kind of hate making mortises. I don't have a hollow chisel mortise, so I'd like to get one. But I always have – I do the little – I make my mortises with uh, with a router generally, and I use uh, template guides, and I make a, a basically a little custom jig every time I have to make a new mortise, um, and it works great. But the whole thing is tedious, and if butt. I could kiss it goodbye, I would. So, what I was planning on getting is a hollow chisel mortise or a good one, a really heavy duty one, right. like maybe the Powermatic benchtop one. Um, which is a nice value mix of value there. You know, it's not over the top, but it'll, but it's really good. Um, so is this any worse than having a hollow chisel mortiser? You know what I mean? Really? I mean, that turns it into just a bunch of plunge cuts. You, 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 
there's skill involved, though. You do, you do have to know how to sharpen your hollow chisels and how to set up the machine properly. And you still and have to know how to cut your tenons properly to fit that more. It's true. It nicely. leaves a lot more skill involved. But, I mean, ultimately, I guess my question is, are you cheating somehow? And I guess we're saying you're not. No, nah, not at all. There's you're not no, cheating. No litmus test. You don't have to cut a joint in a certain way. You don't have to use hand-cut dovetails. You know, there's a lot of ways to, to get to the end that you're looking for, and especially a mortise and tenon that you're not going to see. Is it strong enough? Is it accurate? Yeah. That's great. So to Ed's point, I, I guess we all probably agree that the question is, number one, can you afford this thing? And if you can't, that's fine. There's a lot of ways, other ways to do it. But two, you have to ask yourself, does it diminish my experience? Because as... Yeah, what is it you like about woodworking? Yeah, as, hobbyist, as a hobbyist, you, uh, the experience is a huge part of it. Right. And you mentioned, you know, pulling out a nice hand plane or something like that, that user experience, which I agree with. That's cool. But I get the same sort of excitement from like a really nice crosscut sled or or a setup on a machine that's been jigged up just right so you make a perfect cut and it's very accurate. I mean that It's funny your eyes are getting wider and he's getting very excited. I, you know, it's it's getting the right tool for the job. Yeah, and I've concluded I've concluded that I do want the Domino XL, but I can't <laughs> afford it. That's what I've concluded. All right. Well, let's um let's move on to our first question and uh This comes from Dan, and Dan wrote, Hey guys, I'm from southern Connecticut, and there are a lot of nice trees down in my neighborhood. This is post-Hurricane Sandy, mind you. Uh, Would a sawmill come by and buy these? Can I ask them to cut me some nice slabs from them? Do you have any experience with settling storm damage? The last question, do you have any experience settling storm damage? I'm not sure exactly what he means. It sounds like he's looking for an insurance expert, but... um, the rest of it, I think we can speak to. I don't know, Mike. Do you uh, do you know anything about the last part of the question, or should we just focus on the? No, nah, let's stick to woodworking. That sounds dandy. Um, the uh, the the idea that would a sawmill come and buy them? I don't know, but I do know that if you can, if you're the owner of the logs, or if you can, or get you can some, get them from the utility yeah, companies, or, or no, the guy who, the, whoever's logs they are, whoever's property yeah. they fell off of. If you often you can get them for free if you promise to be the one that clears them up, I'm sure. Um, the real que- the the real answer I think is getting probably the, mo- uh, the probably the most helpful thing to tell the guy is getting someone who owns a bandsaw mill, which are portable. Wood misers are probably the leading manufacturer of them. There's a lot of guys who own these bandsaw mills, and if you go uh, if you go to woodmiser.com and you click on uh, so it's Wood Miser spelled with a Z, M-I-Z-E-R. You click on Resource Center and then find a custom Sawyer. Um, you just fill out a little form there, and they email you contact information for bandsaw mill owners in your area. There's a lot of people who own these bandsaw mills, and they're just looking for jobs to do. And maybe if they're a woodworker, too, maybe you could split the... Sure. And, you know, But often numbers. you can get them to come out because they want the work so bad and get them to come out at a very attractive price. And they'll come out and saw with their thing, you know, trailered on the back of their truck. They'll come out and saw whatever it is, wherever it is. They'll go into the woods and everything. Um, They're very portable. And they'll saw it up while you stand there any which way you want. Of course, then um, you have to deal with a bunch of wet lumber and transporting it back to your place and stacking it up and painting the ends so they don't split and finding the right way to make a lumber stack and having the space and the storage to let it dry. Or 
you need to make an arrangement with someone who has a big kiln yeah, yeah. and uh you know but there's but this happens all the time and big giant logs fall down in urban and rural settings all the time and people get them sawn up it's really a matter of um finding somebody local and just talking to another human being and getting it going there's a guy in south florida that um he does this sort of thing when whenever the hurricanes hit he goes and gathers any cuban mahogany trees that come down because oh, obviously yeah. you can't buy cuban mahogany right. right so he this guy has a pretty decent business i think he's probably yeah. making good money mm-hmm. selling this stuff but um uh but here's the question if you so if you get one of these guys to come up and mill up a bunch of wood um let's say you don't have access to a kiln does that whole um suggestion of one year drying per inch pertain to you know no kiln involvement that's the rule of thumb for air drying okay. yeah it's a it's a year per, per inch. inch but i've heard from various people that Thinner stuff goes faster than that, and thicker stuff goes a little slower than that. So, and it depends on the species. So, um, that all sort of depends. We've had great articles on it. One was by Garrett Hack, where he showed you how to make a uh, the, a lumber stack the proper way. We've had a number of them that they can find. You could link to. Right, a lot of folks they do work with true air dried lumber, where they'll stick it outside for a length of time bring it into the shop, let it acclimate. It'll never get down to the same really dry moisture content of kiln dried lumber. But the workability is a lot better because the lignans haven't mm. been hardened through the heat treatment the heat. and everything. There's no case hardening, so it mills a lot nicer. Um, Air dried is a dream to work. Yeah. And I think it will get down to uh, – it'll reach equilibrium in your shop just the way a kiln dried lumber would too. Right, right. Yeah. So if you have a nice dry shop, either heated in the wintertime or, sure. or something like that. Um, Especially wood stovey. That's a really dry – Heat, oh, yeah. I would imagine that if you're running a wood stove all winter long, it's going to drive a lot of the moisture out yeah, of it. Yeah, people rave about air-dried. I haven't ever really used air-dried. I haven't had the opportunity. But I know for steam bending, people rave about it. Right. And just for workability because with hand tools. Because of the lignans. Right. Yes, right? because the lignans never got heated and baked in place. Right. right. Okay. All right, cool. Um, so basically, if you if you get a bandsaw guy to come out and saw up the tree, you're basically paying that guy to, to mill the lumber for you. So that's the, really the, the cost of your lumber um, is basically what you're paying. And it does work out to be a good deal. Uh, one thing to watch out for, yard trees that could have metal, nails, that kind of stuff in it. If you break a saw blade, you pretty much um, are going to have to pay to replace that blade. And if you go through a couple blades in a tree, mm. that will add up. The cost of the lumber. So be careful around pasture land, especially where folks were typically uh, nailing barbed wire to trees. And Oh, there you go. God knows what else. Yep. Okay. Um, well, let's head on to question number two, and this is from Matthew uh, Kanamata. And Matthew writes, I want to get into intarsia. I know that it requires a good scroll saw. I have a cheap Harbor Freight saw that I always seem to get cut on. It has the type of blade that has the T-style shank, not the pin style. I can't seem to be able to turn sharp corners with the blades that the saw requires. Should I purchase a new saw? Any good books on intarsia? Now, before we get into the nuts and bolts, I wanted to, I think we should define intarsia because I'm sure a lot of people out there have no idea what the heck this guy is referring to. So it's similar to inlay, and it uses various shapes, sizes, and species of wood to create a mosaic image, basically. Um, so with that, uh, Asa, you're, uh, you're looking at me, so what do you got? Well, we did it. There's a lot of things that could be going on here with him having trouble turning corners with his uh, scroll saw. It, I don't think it's, I don't think it's the T versus the pin style um, shank. I do think that it 
probably has more to do with his saw and the blades, the types of blades that he's using. What my experience with Harbor Freight is it's a crapshoot, and um, I think that would be fair to say that the consistency varies widely. I mean, there's no lower price on earth. It's like shocking that you can they can offer right. tools at the price. It's like I don't want to know who's making these and in what conditions and <laughs> how it's arriving here. But um, the thing is, you, I've heard people have Harbor Freight stuff that they got for a song that has worked wonderfully for many years, and I've heard other people say, "Oh my God, it's useless." So you really at that price. Um, you're really you're taking a chance. So it could be that uh, um, that his saws got problems. It could also be that he's using um, the wrong blades. And when we last did an article about scroll saws, we we talked about um, everything about it using the scroll saw. And then we also had a tool review. Um, Ed can link to this on the website uh, for the podcast. It was issue one seventy seven. Uh, June 2005. It's been a while. Paul Schirsch, who's a scroll saw master, did a really nice article for us. And I don't really think the scroll saws on the market have changed very much. No, I was going to say, I think your intuition that it's most likely the the blade choice is probably the thing that's given him problems. Yeah. So back then, if you want to dig this up, uh, we liked the DeWalt scroll saw the best. It was an incredible value. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, well, it's three hundred and ninety bucks, so it's you know going to be three times the price of the Harbor Freight. But um, so, but it's probably the blade. So here's a little bit of blade advice. Um, Shirsh for general work on with tight corners. He's using a number five skip tooth blade, um, and the, the most people get these blades from Olson. Olson supplies most of the. Um, O-L-S-O-N, OlsonSaw.com. Um, they supply most of the blades out there. So the Olson number would be 446. Um, it's really good for detailed fret work. So the tooth pattern and the size of the blade, the thickness and the depth of the blade, they all matter. So and there's lots of different uh, blades. And Shirsch outlines the six blades he uses most often um, with the Olson item numbers with each one. If you want to dig up that article, we could pull out just that info too and just make that available. Cool. Okay. Easy enough. Uh, well, with that, it's now time to introduce a brand new segment, sort of, here on Shop Talk Live, and that is all-time favorite technique of all time for this week. Ah, uh, yes, Ace and Mike are about to wax poetic regarding their most beloved, cherished woodworking techniques. Quite frankly, it's rather uncomfortable in here right now. Perhaps I should leave you two in the shop to make some sawdust? Sweet music together. Um all right, so who wants to go first? Do we do this alphabetically, or does somebody just say, I'm going? Oh, Asa's pointing to Mike. Uh, I thought about this, and um, the first thing that came to mind was uh, watching Brian Boggs, who's an awesome chairmaker, formerly of Berea, Kentucky. He's now, where's he at now? Uh, uh, he's Asheville, in uh, Asheville. Asheville. Um, just a, a genius. And one of his great tricks that I've um, I use all the time, and whenever I get the chance, I demonstrate this technique and uh, give him props whenever I can. He came up with the stupidest thing in the world. It's a little wooden block with a bandsaw kerf in it. And it is basically <gasps> a five-in-one tool for sharpening and honing your scraper. It's just it's fantastic. It handles a lot of tasks, and it gets my scraper up and running fast and easy and gives me top performance on that. And whenever I demonstrate it, I get out this little block and 
everyone's eyes start to glaze over a little bit until they see how how easy it is to use it and the great results you get. So basically my Boggs block is um, probably one of the uh, the biggest eye-opening discoveries in my woodworking career. In fact, I even did a short video on that on our website. Which we will link to in yep. the blog post for this podcast. Yep. That's really awesome except for the fact that you didn't tell anyone at all how it works. Yeah. Oh. Um, you put your scraper in it. Yeah. In the curve. Yep. Leave it in there overnight. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Come back the next day. No, the whole thing about honing a scraper is first getting the uh, faces and edges nice and polished at right angles to each other. To start with nice, sharp, uh, smooth corners first before you hone it, that's the key. And the block is is really critical and does a really good job helping you both file the edges perpendicular to the faces to hone and polish those perpendicular. It holds the scraper in the vise without marring the scraper at all, and it helps you determine your angles when you're burnishing as well. So, Doesn't it, while you're, the one of the steps to getting the the edge of your scraper square to the faces is standing it upright and sort of rubbing it on a diamond on plate or right. whatever. And this block guarantees that it stays perfectly vertical while you polish it on stones or on a diamond plate or something like that, right? Yep. Yep. To me, that's like the coolest thing. And then when you go to use it for burnishing, you stick the scraper blade just a little bit outside the block and then ride the burnisher on the block and the blade and it kind of guarantees... A nice, a uh, perfect burnishing angle. Very shallow angle. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I, it's it's amazing all the different uses off this little wonder block. Yes, it is very very cool. Cool. Uh, well, and incidentally, if anybody listening had gone to find woodworking live and taken Mike's class on uh, which class was that? Uh, that was sharpening. Uh, on sharpening. It was and, on sharpening, and everybody walked away with a little poplar block with a bandsaw curve in it and a fine woodworking live logo branded into the side. And I, I recall watching you brand. All of these blocks at the office the week before. 300 of them. 300 yes. of them the week before Fine Working Live. Poor Mike was sitting in the shop like, yep. time to make the donuts. Yeah, yeah. That, that, was a, that was a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great use of your time. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, let's turn it over to you, Asa. Mine is uh, taking the best tip I ever picked up along the way, at least for this week, is that I learned to take more time on design. And part of that was I learned it from working on a lot of articles about design and seeing how long the best designers took on in the design stages. But part of it is a little like watching yourself on video or hearing yourself on a podcast. When you hear it back, it's so painful that you learn a lot of hard lessons about don't do that again, do do that. It's the same with living with some of your early pieces. You sort of, it's just a painful reminder of all the things you did wrong, <laughs> which is good. That's part of the journey. And um, I've learned just through the school of hard knocks that you can't spend enough time on the design stages. So two quick examples are I was making these Morris chairs and I wanted to do something different than Greg Paolini's slats or whatever the slats that were on the side are there. I wanted to do more of a Macintosh look, so make these square pierced holes in the side slats. But you could screw that up lots of different ways. Squares too big, squares too small, placement whacked out. You know, where are you placing the slats? I kind of had three sort of uh, more toward the middle of the space, uh, three slats together. And so I built the whole ch- – I, I drew it first to get close. And then I built the chair except for the slats, and I put in little MDF um, – I dry fit the chair, and I put in little MDF fake slats with Sharpie 
square piercings drawn on them and moved it around and changed the size of the Sharpie squares until I got it how I wanted it. There's nothing like having a physical model there. So drawings get you so far, hmm. and then mock-ups get you farther. And then another one was I was just making those those four Tansu dresser cabinets, stackable cabinets I've been talking about. And in that case, it was functionality that I really dialed in. So I actually folded up all our clothes and stuff, and I started measuring how big is because I, I didn't want to make funny. the cabinets deeper than I needed to, you right. know, because it would start looking uh, clunky. So it's like, how deep is a pair of pants? You know, my wife and I are not going to change length. We're like wood; we change a lot side to side, but we don't change <laughs> in length a lot. So, uh, um, how our, deep are your pants? Our pants, <laughs> my pants are going to stay whatever they are, thirty-two or whatever length forever. Um, I guess I'll shrink a little, but they're not going to get bigger lengthwise. So it was sort of like I, I put all that stuff in actual piles, you know, to kind of see. I'm sure listeners are finding this very fast. Yeah, right. But it's sort of like, what are you doing with your furniture? I mean, the functionality of it, how tall do you, do you want your workbench? You know what I mean? How tall do you want your kitchen island? Yeah, absolutely. You know? uh, what's going in those drawers? You know, what, what kind of an array of drawers? That's the beauty of making custom work is you can really customize it to your lifestyle. So... That's your chance. You basically get one shot at it, and then you put in four months making this stuff, and then it's too late, man. That's it. All right. Well, I got one, and it's I'll go real quick. It's um, it's basically the idea of doing a power tool assist for my dovetails, and there are many different ways to do this. Mike often does it with uh, often does his dovetails at the table saw, and uh, I learned this really cool trick from Stephen Hammer, and I have one of the pieces from it with me. Um, the way Stephen Hammer cuts his dovetails is he starts by cutting his tails. He marks out a board, and all the tails are equally spaced from the center line of the board. And he makes this little uh, jig that he uses at the um, at the bandsaw against a fence on the bandsaw. So imagine you've got a this is a piece of poplar, and uh, one of the uh, edges is straight, and on the other side I have a the angle of my dovetail joinery cut into it and a little stop block on it's the like end. It's like a ramp. It's like a ramp, yeah. And I just, I pop my, you know, drawer side in this thing and I ride it against the bandsaw fence and I make a cut and then I flip the board uh, side for side, make another cut and then readjust the fence and do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it, and then, you know, there are various ways to go and get rid of the waste and whatnot, but it's just... Um, it tiles I, in your tail cuts. I cut everything perfectly mm-hmm. every time now. And there's another jig that Stephen Hammer uses to then do the pins do the pins and whatnot. But, uh, and you can actually see all this. There's a video workshop that he did called Dovetail Techniques. Um, and it's just super awesome because I'm still terrible at hand-cutting dovetails. Yeah. Um, well, that still counts. It still counts, yeah. I feel like. I feel like yeah. I still cut dovetails with it. Yeah. You know, I'm not using a total do-everything jig. Again, hand-cut doesn't have to mean that you actually sought it right by hand it's really the look that you're after yep uh like narrow pins basically yep. is what usually what people and are so talking we about. all know that you're cheating but we don't really say it out no loud. one tells anybody except when i tell yeah. everybody on the podcast and when i have my domino xl i'm not going to tell everyone i'm not going to shout that i made all my mortises in five minutes when you have your domino xl your wrists are going to be really in a lot of pain why is that that thing is heavy is it? Yes. It's th- a big machine, I think man. what's more likely to happen is all you guys are going to owe me a lot of favors because everyone's going to be borrowing it. Yes, definitely. When are you going to get that? I'm not getting it. I can't afford it. My wife will kill me. Uh, all right. Next question. 
Shoot. Let's do it. All right. Jim wrote, uh, Issue 229 of Fine Woodworking contained an excellent tool test of combination squares. However, it implied to me that the best square for an apron pocket or tool belt pouch is a 4-inch double square. Now, for years, I've been carrying a 6-inch combination square in a tool belt pouch. While in my shop, I use a Starrett. My question is, why is a double square the preferred small square? My small combo square allows me to mark for miter cuts and check miters. It seems to me that it should be the better choice. If a 6-inch combo square is as good as or nearly as good as a double square, would you consider a tool test of them? Or are they pretty much the same as their 12-inch cousins? In Jim's journey through life, he has stumbled into a common uh, pitfall along the side of the road, which is the right or wrong pitfall. And it it Mm. ensnares Mm. many of our readers and many bloggers. There is none. Especially. There generally isn't that. But the thing is, once Fine Woodworking says something, and we do a whole article on it, we we don't have unlimited space. So in this article, we focused on Two really handy sizes, nice big full-size 12-inch combo square, and then a nice little pocket size um, that we all like. But by no means does it mean that we hate all the people walking around with 6-inch squares. He makes a perfectly uh, good point. If he loves the 6-inch size and he finds it handy, it's great. You could sit here debating this stuff all day long. I I was just talking to Michael Fortune about (laughs) how I like... Um, a 16-foot tape measure, and he was really telling me that the 12 is the superior (laughs) tape measure. And I was like, yes, but the 16 is long enough to handle everything at the lumber yard, but small enough to still work in my shop. And he's like, that's why I have two. And, you know, it's like, (laughs) you know. I'm actually with Jim on this. I like the six-inch combo square. That is my small go-to guy. Yeah. Um, Is there a big difference between the two? No, not really. I do have a four-inch as well. And this is as close as I can to saying why one might work better than the other. Is that the the four inch square? <coughs> it's a nope, double doing it again. <laughs> it's a double square, so the um, I guess the head is basically a rectangle, so you can measure off either side of the head. There's no mitered. The problem so. is, is when I go to maybe set the um, like the depth of a mortise that that I would then want to transfer to my table saw fence for cutting my tenons or something like that, and it's sort of like roughly halfway in between, you know, a little over under two inches. I set it down, then I pick it up, I look at my square, and I don't know which side I was measuring Mm -hmm. from there. So the benefit of a six-inch combo square is it has a 45 degree on one side of the head, 90 on the other, so you always know what side you're referencing on. That's a small difference, and I I don't think it's enough to, to pick one over the other, but I think both are really nice squares. In terms of quality, I think I would go by that 12 inch review and say, the six-inch squares probably can perform about the same. Could could some of this be because you're older than Ed and I, and maybe slightly more feeble-minded? Mm. Touche. Possibly. Yeah, I'm just throwing it out there as a possibility. I'm just spitballing. Mike, did you use a lot of recreational drugs in the past? Okay, you guys have just been cursed because the next time you use your little four-inch <laughs> square, you're going to set it down, pick it up, and look <laughs> at it. <laughs> totally right. <laughs> All right. So in, in a nutshell, look, there is no right or wrong way. It's one of those, like, there is no right or wrong way. It's whatever suits you. you yeah. Know. And it's okay. that people endlessly uh, froth on the internet about, about right or wrong, and yeah. they go on and on. But the truth is, take the thing that I feel really strongly about is take the tools that you have and go out and do work. Don't wait to get all the hand planes you need. Don't wait to get the perfect everything you need. Uh, one of my favorite woodworkers of all time, Young Chan from uh, 
Bay Area in San Francisco. He 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 grew up making incredible toys and things in China, all from tools he fashioned himself out of just you know industrial garbage things that were lying around. You know, it's like Brian Boggs made his first chair from a sharpened screwdriver and a log. Um, don't let uh, the right and wrong nonsense hold you back. All right. Well, here's another one for you. This uh, question comes from James Neal, and James wrote in. Over the past few months, I have built two different styles of end table, both having tapered legs. The legs are approximately an inch and a half thick and are cut using a jig at the table saw. I'm using a Freud Fusion Premium combination blade. Although this blade performs amazing during normal woodworking tasks, it caused very deep burns when tapering the legs. I've tried changing feed rates with minimal improvement. I even stopped to clean the pitch from the blade, but the burn marks keep coming back. This has me wondering. Should I change to a rip blade made specifically for thicker stock when tapering thick legs to avoid burn marks? Probably. Yeah, it's probably not a bad idea. And bottom line is every time I've tapered legs on a table saw, it's really, really common to get burns. It's just because you're making such a shallow cut into that leg, and it's a pretty the blade is pretty high. So there's um, a lot of blade to flex, and there's a real tendency for that workpiece coming into that shallow cut to flex that blade out. Also, table saw tapering jigs he's, are, are pretty horrible. The, if he's talking about that little two-legged aluminum thing um, it, that you buy, the commercial right. one, that thing's borderline unsafe and um, does not give good results. It doesn't support the workpiece firmly. Mm-hmm. So it's just adding to the amount that everything's flexing, the jig is flexing, the blade is flexing, the workpiece uh, is moving around on you. A jig like the one where everything's held down with the Staco clamps and the jig actually runs in a miter track um, – keeps the piece way more stable and on track, like the one Steve Latta just Which did. We have a video on it. Great jig. I'll, yeah. I'll put a link in the yep. blog post. Yep. And also, the other thing could be if he's running it off his rip fence, if it's that sort of aluminum commercial jig and he's running it off his rip fence, if the rip fence is out of alignment with the blade, mm-hmm. it's basically going to be like a crooked rip cut, which, yeah. which uh, wants to burn on you. So right. um, be really careful. Make sure, for starters, any kind of a jig running off your rip fence is going to have major problems if the rip fence isn't parallel to the blade. So it's any or all of the above. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, it's time to announce the winner of our last uh, last episode's Shop Stumper. And this one was a great deal more difficult than our debut Stumper. So before I reveal what that sound was and who the winner is, let's listen to the audio one more time. Here now is the sound featured on episode 18's Shop Stumper. Not many correct answers this week, but we did receive some. The sound was, in fact, a marking gauge being drawn across a board, and this week's winner is Sandra McGuire. Well, that's amazing. Like, I never would have been able to guess. <laughs> Only got that. two correct. It's borderline mean-spirited and unfair, but go ahead. Only got two correct answers. I mean, that's how, you know, of all of the answers we received. Um, so for her effort, uh, Sandra will receive a commemorative reprint of Fine Woodworking issue number one dating back to 1975 a time when Gerald Ford was busy tripping on national television, the Bee Gees were busy jive-talking, Jaws was in theaters, and the Oldsmobile Cutlass was king of the road. I looked that up, actually. A lot of people were tripping on national television. Uh, which kind of... Wait, never mind. Uh, anyhow, nice work, Sandy. Um, so let's head into our next segment of the day. By the yes. way, that that uh, that um, commemorative issue, uh, first mm-hmm. edition, is totally gorgeous. It comes... Uh, it's 
it's a beautiful reprint, and also the packaging, everything about it. It's just a really nice, uh, nice item. I'm not really hawking it. I'm just saying it's a cool prize. Right. And compared to all those other references, the fact that this magazine came out amidst all of that. All of that And it still crap. actually looks pretty good. <laughs> there were smart things going on. There was yeah. good music happening. Everything wasn't horrible at that time. Um, there's, hold on. There's, yeah. any, there's yeah. just the hairdos and the clothes. I just went to go see Argo, that movie. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's a really great period piece, you know, real attention to detail. Um, but, man, did we look bad oh, yeah. at that time. So did kitchens. Every, yeah, Harvest that's true. wheat and avocado green, everything in the kitchen. The colors. <laughs> right. what, what? But, I mean, the glasses were giant. They looked like the Hubble <laughs> telescope, you know. It was unbelievable. It's like we couldn't have looked worse. But we thought we were happening. You know what I mean? Just, or not we. It was a little bit more my parents' generation. Uh, but anyway. I was definitely happening in my playpen. I had quite a 10-year-old pompadour going myself at that time. Really? Big lapels? Yep. Large. Definitely. Yeah, I had a tight-fitting silver uh, le- leisure suit shirt, Come one on. of those polyester sh- shirts. Remember those? Oh, yeah. It was very tight, and it had geometric patterns on it. That was a big thing. It's like to have like triangles and stuff. And oh, my God. <laughs> Whatever happened to the leisure suit? Brilliant. No, horrible. But, yeah. But what does that even it's mean, It's still being suit. carried forth in certain uh, areas of the country, I think. You could still find an odd leisure suit. Lurking, but was a leisure suit meant only for dancing, or was it just like when you're at leisure, when you're sitting on the couch it's reading the like TV guy? Cruise wear, cabana wear. I don't really understand cabana it. Cabana wear. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. I, I, I'm not going to go in the weeds here. Okay. Uh, next segment uh, this week is going to be smooth moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? And this is where we all reveal the boneheaded woodworking moves we've most recently made in the shop. So. Um, Always the easiest segment to come up with. Mike started first. Yeah. You're going to go first. Really? Time. All right. Mine's quick. I was I needed something to mark joinery or mark something on the ends of boards. And the closest thing was a red Sharpie, like the one that's right by Ed's microphone right now. And I grabbed it and I made marks on the there end grain go. of my boards and thinking, well, I'll remove the ends of those boards later. But it's soaked way in and you can still see a reddish tinge on my beautiful tab joints that are all plain flush. And, uh, Will anyone nightmare. else really ever notice that? Here's a pinkish hue. And I, I'm, the more shellac, I'm using sort of a, a, a brown-tinted shellac. Um, the more of that coats I put on, the more it'll obscure it. But I'm afraid it's still going to show. Mm. So don't use a Sharpie to mark boards. It soaks in. Well, I have one this week, too. And it's something that I just noticed this past weekend on a side table that I built, like, I don't know, six months ago. Um, It's a little arts and crafts oak side table, nothing particularly incredible. But I was sitting in my leather, like, old man easy chair next to said table. And I noticed that where one of the aprons meets one of the legs, it's only one intersecting joint where this is occurring. The reveal between, you know, the front face of the apron and the you know, the leg, like the setback from the yeah, side of the leg, yeah. um, is considerably closer than on all of the other ones on the table. What's great is not only did you screw it up to start with, but you didn't even notice it until now. Didn't even notice it until now. And I, so I, I am surmising that maybe I must have taken too many swipes with my little block rabbit plane while I was, you know, fitting, doing the final fit on that one joint. And I mm. must have trimmed one cheek and I didn't trim the other cheek or something. I don't know what I did. Um, but uh, it's driving me nuts. No one else will ever notice this 
but it's driven me so crazy that I actually, this morning, I rotated the table 180 degrees so that when I'm sitting in the easy chair, yeah. I will not see it. Well, that's the thing. If you <laughs> don't see your screw-ups, do they really exist? Like, I've given my most horrific pieces of furniture I've made to relatives. There you go. And as far as uh, I know... No, you only see them on holidays, then. I don't look. Mike? Uh, this is a bit of a smooth move. Um, I was just doing a run of little small miter boxes, and... Uh, it's one of those things where the notion is, oh, these are really small. You can make them using the scraps you've got in your shop. Great if you're making a box. Right. If you're doing 20 of these things, I thought, you know, I've got enough wood in my shop. So I went around and out of, you know, maybe a dozen pieces of scraps, all of different lengths and thicknesses and widths, I said, oh, I can get a box out of here, two out of here, one out of here. I spent so long trying to save time when I should have just bit the bullet, went to the lumber yard, gotten one board and milled it up and be done with it. So, you know, sometimes saving time is is counterproductive. Yeah, cutting it super close on lumber and trying to squeak things out of boards out of your off-cut pile right. is brutal. Yeah. I've gotten to the point, really, aside from that, which is why I was using the scraps for boxes, I pretty much don't keep a lot of scraps in my shop. I don't Me keep either. a lot of lumber in my shop. I just burn them. Yeah, it's, it's tough not to keep them, though, I find. I know. It is, but you'll get over it. Like, what size, you know, constitutes it's, And you, always, you can always have an excuse for keeping a scrap. I, like, yes. But how many file and screwdriver handles are you really going to make in your life? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Burning cherry smells really nice. So yeah, and it doesn't match anything else, and it's a different color, and I don't know. Right. It's just, it, it's one of those things. It's like, do you want to be a hoarder or, yeah. All right. Well... Uh, last question of the day. You ready? Uh, this comes from Vance, and Vance wrote, I enjoy learning new tips and techniques from magazines and online, but have been really wanting to focus on growing my hand tool knowledge and skills. I know there really is no substitute for an in-person, hands-on class, but I wanted to hear your opinions regarding some of the online classes that are out there. So, what advice do we have um, regarding the online classes that can be found? I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. I'm not going to bother rattling them all off. Well, we don't really have much experience with these new models of teaching online. Um, I mean, obviously, there's no substitute for having, if you're looking for a class, there's no substitute for actually being there in person with a human being and having them watch in person what you're doing and seeing in person what they're doing and having the camaraderie behind between all the other people. I think a big part of the experience is sort of like we're all in this good ship together. We're all on this voyage together, and whether it's a weekend or just a day or a whole week, and it becomes a real great life experience. I think none of that you're really going to get from the online experience. That's not to say that having an online mentor really dedicated to you and having a real skilled person to carve out time uh, for you in their in that you you know isn't a great thing and that you can't trade back and forth a lot of information and guidance through all the you know FaceTime and all the various ways to interact these days but um you know vetting that person becomes really important so uh the what I always say first off if you're looking for an expert is look at what they've built look really closely at what they've built how many things have they built in their life um and what and look at it. Do you want to do work like that? Um, is that work good enough? Uh, 
Do they seem like a true expert who's done it a lot? Because the 10th time you do something, is ra- even the third time, is radically different from the first time you do anything. So make sure that the th- that you know that they're not just a step ahead of you you know there's a lot of people hanging their shingle up out there um uh, you know you just you know that said if you're paying less for the online type of a class then there's less of a risk too so maybe you take a chance on someone and if you have a good vibe with them then that's great yeah i would also just take a look before you you maybe sign up and and fork some money over and, and watch an online class take a look at all the free content out there i mean if you're I mean, for me, woodworking is is not a, a good thing because you know because um, I sort of know too much about it to go in cold. But things like when I want to know how to you know sharpen a knife, maybe get some techniques using water stones on knives or stained glass work or you know butchering a chicken, something where oh I, I need some information. I'm going online. You Google some stuff. You look at four or five YouTube videos. It's really apparent right off. Who knows what they're talking about? Who doesn't know what they're talking about? Right. And it also, you know, watch four or five people do something, cut a dovetail or whatever, and it gives you some context for the information you're getting. Okay, now I see five different people. They all have five different takes. Now I'm watching someone else. Okay, what are they doing different? What are they doing the same? You know, what's the, the quality That's of the, the work they're doing? That's the common theme, Yeah, I just, I don't know. For me, that, you know, going on the internet and hunting down information, I, I like that, you know, the thrill of the hunt. Seeing this guy, though, might be talking about the interaction you get with somebody. I think he's talking uh, about these classes where you then show them your work. Uh, they then comment back. It's more the e-learning wow, type I didn't of even thing. Know so it's not just like a little video series. No, 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 no. Wow, no, wow, he's wow. talking okay. about like the it's it's an equivalent of going to school. It's like an online university where you have t- the professor's time and hmm. you pass in work. They then evaluate that work. I think he's more in that bag. Wow. And we just don't have a ton of experience Although with, I with would evaluating think that, that, like we could tell you what schools we've been impressed by, um, at the risk of pissing off a lot of people. But um, in terms of online personalities, that's why I was giving them right. some advice on you know how to evaluate so-called right, so it, experts. Yeah. I mean, Sounds I, like we don't really have an answer. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're going, I mean, it's one thing if you're just looking for online content. That's one thing. If you're looking for a sort of a one-on-one experience. You know, taking a class, I know from my experience taking classes and teaching classes that, you know, as an instructor, one of the easiest things is to forget what you know. You show something, you think, oh, here's a really easy demo, now go do it. And then you have 10 students and they all kind of get it wrong in 10 different ways, but in ways that, oh, I know what you're doing here, try this. Oh, But you couldn't really anticipate. Right. And you take for granted a lot of the stuff that you just... Exactly. So, I mean, to be able, the favorite thing about uh, teaching for me is getting with the students, seeing the problems they're having, and knowing immediately, oh, here, try this. Oh, the weight should be at the front of the plane or not the back. So you're saying be there, being there in person to watch them in person is pretty critical. It's it's a tremendous experience, and I think you progress and get better, and you learn things in a way that's so much more effective than I think in any other method of learning. I can see the appeal of the online educator though it's the same with online universities it generally costs less and you don't have to travel anywhere you know right. it's uh you know so it's woodwork in your yeah. underpants you can woodwork in your underpants which ed does all the time occasionally here in that fine woodworking on saturdays right um so leather apron and underpants that's <laughs> right uh suede actually <laughs> all right um as you all know we get lots of comments on our itunes uh 
in our iTunes page, and uh, I like to read a few every week. So here we go, starting with the first one that's going to really please Asa. Whitey wrote in to say, more informative than Ace on the House and almost as entertaining. Obviously a reference to Adam Carolla's Ace on the House podcast. Um, uh, what I'm cracking up with is that this guy has given himself the handle Whitey. Whitey, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is great. It's kind and of it's amusing. spelled W-I-G-H-T-I-E. So I have a feeling like it's his own handle he's given himself, which is, I don't know, hilarious. But go on, move on. Right on. Uh, from L-U-B-K. It's okay and, ent- and entertaining. Not like there's a large market for competition out there for this topic. I do listen to the podcast in my workshop. Maybe more how-to, such as refinishing techniques, uh, use of shellac, etc. Well, uh, L-U-B-K, your comment was actually part of the reason we introduced today's segment dubbed All-Time Favorite Technique of All Time for this week, and we do plan on running that segment pretty regularly. So, cheers. And finally, JDN862 wrote in to say, This has been your best podcast yet. I believe he was referring to episode 18, our interview with Mira Nakashima and shop foreman Jerry Everett. Uh, Never miss one. In particular, I feel you're doing the sound much better than in the beginning. Keep up the good work. Uh, well, thanks, JDN, for noticing our efforts at uh, delivering top-notch sound. This is an ever-evolving show that we just keep trying to improve upon with the help of folks who leave feedback for us online. And, yeah, uh, we now have a podcasting. We're sitting in a podcasting studio, indeed. and we've upped our equipment, and, uh, and all in the effort that this really is just about sound. we got the white headphones. We have white <laughs> headphones. Well, you so guys we do. look like a teenager on a subway train. I have cool black ones. Yep. Um, but, uh, no, we have, we, we recognized that early on that the sound wasn't up to par and that shooting it out in our romantic shop environment. Once we went off video, um, that being out in the shop. Echo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, uh, why are we at a workbench? <laughs> why, why are we out here? And it was echoing like heck. And then we evolved into the, um, the blanket fort, the blanket fort. We created, <laughs> we used, uh, stands that are normally to hold seamless paper behind photo backdrops, and we put up a wall, a big house of blankets what around a pain ourselves. In the ASS, <laughs> oh my gosh! And that got to be painful. And now we've evolved to different mics, and um, and we have a studio. We have a little studio we set up. Sound insulating foam on the walls and everything. There is still one blanket temporarily covering the, okay, the glass serious. windows. Someday we'll my dream that. is to be able to take live telephone calls. That would be awesome. Yes, I have experimented with that, so it's it's feasible. Um, in the future. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things, one thing at a time. My dream is more <laughs> having to do with a yacht. <laughs> yeah. Would you well, wear the, the captain's hat if you had a yacht? Absolutely. You would? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay. That tells a lot about Mike. And nothing else. All right. Uh, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on November 23rd for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at tauntin.com. That's T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com. Cheers, everybody.